Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Four. Could you repeat that, please, Mr. DeSantos? I sat forward in my chair, nervously, uncomfortable in my brand new formal suit. I'd only bought it that morning, a quick grab off the rack from a clothier's on post, just before shove-off. It was the only one I'd ever owned up to that point, and frankly, couldn't see the appeal. Emeras Basta. Customer Field Representative for Meerschaum Associates, ILLC, was looking at me incredulously. They all were. A violation does, in fact, exist, I explained. There is a substantial military presence there. I don't have the evidence with me right now, but as a member of the mission sent to gather this express information, I'm willing to sign an affidavit that what I'm saying is the truth. That should be enough for you to justify any further investigations. This was taking place in an unassuming office, given over to United Humanity and its subcontractor for the duration of the cruise. We were aboard the Bel Air-class Grand Carrier City-State, Alliance Fleet, flagship of the Zulu Dawn Detachment under Admiral Bethany Dusane. I hadn't met the good admiral yet, but Emeros had, and he'd gotten the fear of God breathed into his bouncy, self-assured frame. That was entertaining, but it didn't bode well for the rest of us. As the supervising go-between for Meerschaum and UH, Emeros was ultimately responsible for collecting and collating all the necessary reports and follow-up information of the mission. Sitting in a borrowed chair next to him was Anya Wi'iloni, here because it was she who had done the actual nuts and bolts layout of the job. Anya looked worried. This was only appropriate under the circumstances. Lawyers for both organizations flanked their respective clients, Meerschaum on the right, UH on the left. A freelance arbiter with a very high reputation and security classification sat at the end, quiet but watchful. They were all in a line on one side of the table. I was on the other side, alone. When the call came in, Siddle had been on a sleeper shuttle out system from Juniper, having just left Circlet Station. As expected, he had resigned from his position as mission supervisor while I'd been away. 
There was an emergency clause in his contract that stated he had to return to UH employment, however temporarily, if any serious complications arose with ongoing projects he'd left behind. This one certainly counted, so he was served with a contract summons at the jump point and handed a ticket for cold passage aboard a superliner just then leaving. He had been on his way to Greenbelt, where his fiancée was waiting, so the summons doubtlessly represented unwelcome news. At some point, there was a scheduling complication with a connecting star jump, and Siddle's arrival was delayed past Fleet's announced departure time from Murrieta's system. Both the UH and Meerschaum camps were annoyed by that. He missed our ride and had to follow on as best he could. That wouldn't be hard, though, since Fleet earmarked a fast personnel jump ship just to carry him over the border into corporate space and then on to 21611B, where we would be waiting. Not that part, important though it is, Emeros instructed. I mean, could you please explain once more about the man we have in custody? What's the ETA on that decryption? Chris asked both John and Stina, tension in his voice like a coiled spring. He seemed like a stable, smart guy, but the edginess of the moment could make a saint bark like a mean dog. This was not where we were supposed to be, according to the mission briefing back on Circlet, and I was becoming a creaking wheel about it, spinning around and around with the same old wobble. He'd actually told me to shut up in those exact words when I brought it up again, and no one else seemed to be in a hurry to agree with me. It was a matter of degrees. Degrees of risk, of liability, of moral shading. There wasn't anything I could do about it. He was the boss of the job and the others liked what he was saying, or so it seemed. Once again, I found myself at odds with management. Once again, I had a problem with the way things were being run, and I couldn't seem to follow simple orders like, Shut up! Not for long, anyway. But I was quiet now. Whether or not I wanted us to be here was immaterial, because here we were. All I could do was keep watch. If anyone screwed up, things would get very hot very fast. Liquidator had scrambled five of its fighter boats, and they fanned out spherically around the test ship, about 5,000 kilometers distance. We'd taken to referring to the thing as a free jump, because, well, it was free to jump anywhere it wanted. In theory. I mean, if they had it functioning perfectly, they'd have been selling it already. Obviously, there were still kinks to work out. Maybe a lot of them. Yeah, sorry... SS-1 replied, sounding a bit sheepish. He pasted up a copy of the latest transmissions to and from the station that he'd been able to decrypt. They were nearly an hour old, and Shady Lady was capturing more all the time as the next test approached. The free jump vessel involved was Jaybird again. We had it on visual from the moment it left the station. But our angle of view was from the back and slightly below, so these images weren't too impressive. Stina had been able to put together a detailed model from just that, though, which is what I was staring at now in gunnery. Jaybird was running across my retinals, spinning on an imaginary axis. Roughly teardrop-shaped, it looked like it could have had no more than a crew of two. 
that it was being piloted by people instead of an AI or by remote was obvious from the decrypted chatter. The pilot, in addition to flying the ship, also monitored it locally for all changes. From the highly technical character of his conversations back and forth with the station on a separate channel, it was clear he was also an engineer active in the thing's development. He kept up a certain familiarity of discourse with his colleagues outside the ship that his partner didn't seem to share. The co-pilot was all business, precise and thorough in her broadcasted confirmations and go-aheads. She seemed less friendly overall, but whether it was because she had fewer bosom comrades on the other side of the mic, or because this was simply how she'd been trained, it was impossible to say. Speculating, I saw it like this. The pilot, and nominal commander of the flight, was a scientist and engineer. The co-pilot was possibly team, retired or current, and there only to help fly the machine. Civilian and military, hand in hand. Naturally, in a deeply commerce-driven society like the Handshake, civvy researchers and eggheads, backed by private and commercial investors, led the charge. Any commercially viable tech or products derived from the research would be licensed out to corporate and governmental agencies. And over here, those were often one and the same. But for Corporate Security Space Branch to be embedded in the project at this stage, which seemed rather early yet, meant they were seeing the same national defense issues on the horizon that I did. And their commitment of a linebreaker warship on full-time guard duty only bolstered this conclusion. The military implications, to which I confess I'd only given passing attention before, now seemed wickedly sharp-edged and vivid. The way things currently stood was that every nation with a sizable defense presence in the form of manned and automated vessels had their assets, as a matter of course, separated into two general categories, ships and boats. While the distinction between the two was often far from clear, by and large, ships had star jump engines and boats did not. Ships traveled across the stars so as to have a wider field of action, while boats focused on the defense of singular assets and particular stellar systems. Warships, therefore, tended to hover around the perimeter of a primary's gravity shadow so as to allow for faster travel between stars, since most of them were unwilling to crawl along in normal space for days or weeks if it could be avoided. War boats clustered near high-value assets needing protection, such as stations or inhabited planets, and also cruised around on patrol. If you could jump deep inside a stellar gravity well, though, you could avoid confrontation with starships entirely, and boats would only be a worry if they could get to you fast enough to put up a fight. That, on its own, seemed unlikely if you had the ability to jump around the system attacking at will. The astro-political and military implications would be enormous. Nations would feel threatened or emboldened, depending upon which side of the technological divide they found themselves. Automated free-jump drones with powerful warheads could be used to wipe out stations, slow-moving masses of ships, or even cities on planetary surfaces, all from light-years away. 
Peace negotiations would invariably slant in favor of those with this capability. It represented a tech imbalance the like of which humanity hadn't seen since pre-star days back on Terra. Like fighting a battle on horseback against tanks and aircraft, anyone in the stirrups was bound to have a bad day. If Team had cottoned on to the implications of the new mapping protocols yet, they hadn't figured out what to do about it. That made the choice of 21611B, or any other star system in Havelina region, a mystery. Even before the mapping reassessment, this would have been too close for comfort to an area of interest. At least it would have been for me if I were planning this thing. There were considerations involved we had no context for. Intellectually, I understood that an early tip-off about this tech to the rest of the galaxy would be worth risking an international incident. What bothered me was that it violated our contract with United Humanity. They were paying the bills, which meant they were supposed to be calling the shots. Out here, that meant Chris was calling them. If UH decided to raise a stink later on, it could easily go far enough to put bad commentary on all our official records. This grand opportunity to beef up my CV could backfire in the worst possible way. Other interests back in the Alliance might praise our work here, or even compensate us for the risks involved. But it wouldn't matter if I couldn't get work in the future. Fleets or AIN Intelligence or even UH itself could contract others to come back out here and do what we were doing now. It didn't have to be us. Assuming everything went smoothly, Chris announced. They should have started the countdown two hours ago. We're still waiting on those decrypts, right? Yeah, John said. A little while yet. Okay, then. If the countdown isn't holding, we'll see Jaybird in action in exactly 10 minutes, 32 seconds, mark. Gunnery's ready, if that helps. Mavis chortled but Chris said nothing. Engines and ship systems are nominal, Dieter put in. Helm? Chris asked, assuring himself that nothing was left to chance. I'm fine, Chris, our resident cyborg responded, still amused. Don't worry. I'm not worried, he replied, because I'm careful. Sensors? Both specialists responded at the same time to the effect that they were all set for the show. But it started another round of bickering. Who's SS1? That's all I'm asking. I have eyes too. We're green across the board. Just not now, guys, okay? Chris begged. Between my complaints and their spats, he was not super thrilled with this crew, I could tell. I wasn't super thrilled with his decisions, so I figured we were even. Not that there was a tally sheet. If it worked out and we got away clean, no one would care. At least that's what I kept telling myself. When the countdown reached zero and nothing happened, we knew something had. Only a delay, Chris muttered, watching. They must be holding to let the escorts get in proper position. See, these outrunners are changing vectors a bit. So, how much longer? Who knows? So, we waited.
You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.